What binds us together is not our demographics, but the fellowship of the gospel. We belong to this fellowship. We belong to this partnership. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part four of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member. Christian, are you a biblical church member? Do you attend whenever you want, or are you faithfully committed to the weekly corporate worship? Are you faithfully serving Christ by serving His church? Are you intentionally engaged in fellowship, loving and caring for your fellow believers in this church? Those are the three great hallmarks that mark a truly biblical church member. What about you? How do you measure up? Are these hallmarks part of your life? Today, Tom will look at the practical implications of these hallmarks being demonstrated in your own life. Let's join our teacher right now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Teaching of God's Word by those who are gifted to do so is not to be, you know, a conversation over a Starbucks cup. It's the proclamation of God's Word. Speak as it were the very words of God. What about if you have serving gifts? Notice verse 11, whoever serves. Again, that's the verb form of the noun deacon. You say, how do I know if I have a serving gift? Well, this is everything that isn't a speaking gift. So if you don't have a speaking gift, you have a serving gift. And Peter's now talking to you. He says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Now, that is a remarkable thing to say. I I have, I believe, by the gift of God, the, the gift of teaching. But through the years, I've also had the opportunity to use the gift of administration in running some organizations and doing some things like that. And, and I can tell you from experience, it's easy for those who have serving gifts to begin to depend solely on their own strength and their own resources. Peter says, don't do that. Don't approach your service in the church thinking, you got this handled. No, he says, if you have a serving gift, that is not a teaching gift, Don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on your own experience, your own creativity, your own hard work. Instead, remind yourself of your need of God's strength to serve effectively and ask Him for help to do so. If you have a serving gift, do you do this? Whenever it is you serve, let's say it's the Lord's Day, do you start by praying, Lord, help me to use the serving gift you have given me in a way that would build up the church. Help me to use it effectively for the benefit of others, for the common good. That's what Peter's saying. Don't rely on yourself, your own strength. Rely on the Lord. So, summing it all up, the means of your service, Christ's plan is for you to serve Him in His church. The means of your service is to use your spiritual giftedness imparted to you by the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion. Now, before we leave this issue of service, let's consider thirdly the reality of your service. The reality is you are serving your Lord Turn back to Matthew. I want you to see this in our Lord's own words. Matthew 25. This is the end of the Olivet Discourse. 
Jesus is describing a judgment that will occur, not the great white throne judgment that happens after the millennium, but rather this is a judgment that happens at the end of the tribulation. When He returns at the second coming, it will be a judgment of all of those who physically survive the tribulation. It's called the judgment of the nations, but it's really a judgment of individuals, as you see. Let's look at it. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations, again, these are those who survived the tribulation, will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right. So here I want you to notice how you get to be a sheep. It's not because of your good works. Here's how you get to be a sheep. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father. That is, the father chose to bless you and inherit the kingdom that he prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is sovereign grace. You're in because God showed you grace. It's not about your works. But Jesus goes on to say, your works have provided evidence of your genuine faith. Notice what he says, verse 35. I was, I, notice the the pronouns. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. That's shocking. Jesus will say to people who survived the tribulation, who come to faith during the tribulation, you did all these things for me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, what does he say? You did it to me. Now, brothers of mine here is a specific reference to your fellow believers. There's nothing wrong with performing acts of mercy for unbelievers, for the world. We're called to be compassionate, gracious people. But he's talking here about believers doing these things, feeding, giving a cup of water in his name to other believers. And he says, when you do that, you did it to me. Do you understand that when you use your gifts to serve the people of this church, you're not serving Tom or Sheila or someone else? You're serving the Lord. If you do it with the right heart, that's how he sees it, and he takes note of it. And at the judgment, he will register that as if you did that for him. You take care of children in our nursery. Seems like a pretty thankless task at times. It's not. Jesus sees every child you pick up done with the right heart. It's as if you cared for him when he was an infant. That's his point. That's his point. That's the reality of your service. Hebrews 6.10 says the same thing. God is not unjust so as to forget your work. Listen to this. And the love which you have shown toward his name, you show love toward 
Jesus' name, how? In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. One of the primary ways you show your love for Christ is by ministering to the people in this church. Let me say that again. One of the primary ways you show your love for Christ is by ministering to people in this church. Let me say it the opposite. A failure to minister to people in Christ's church is to demonstrate a lack of love for Jesus. In fact, you remember in John 21, Jesus is restoring Peter, and he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And each time, of course, Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he finishes by saying, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And each time when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll care about my sheep. You'll feed my sheep. You'll tend my lambs. Now, that's an apostle, but the same thing is true for every, every Christian. You want to show your love for Jesus Christ? Love his people. You know, sometimes I meet people who will tell me, it's happened in this church, some folks who used to be a part of the church, and, you know, they'll come to me and say, Tom, you know, I, I love Christ, but I'm just not, you know, I just don't need the church. I'm just not that concerned. It's like, that can't be. That's utterly incongruous. You can't love the head of the church and not love his body. You can't love the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and not love his other children. It's impossible. So, are you regularly serving the people of this church Are you regularly serving the people of this church? If not, how do you begin? Well, first of all, understand that the Lord has equipped and commanded you to serve His church. Secondly, just commit that you're going to obey Him. Tell Him, Lord, I'm done making excuses. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to serve you in the church. Thirdly, just discover what this church needs and what you think you can do and volunteer. Get it busy, get involved. A great way to start that is visiting the ministry fair after the service, if you haven't already. So you should commit, number one, to corporate worship. If you're going to be a biblical church member, number two, to service. But there's a third hallmark of a biblical church member. It's fellowship. Fellowship. Loving the church. Now, I want to begin by looking at the meaning of fellowship. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and look at verse 41. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter's sermon is done. People have repented. Verse 41 says, And so then those who had received his word, Peter's message, were baptized. They believed they were baptized. And that day there were added to the church in Jerusalem about 3,000 souls. That morning... They'd started the day with about 120 gathered in a room praying. By the time the day was done, the church was at least 3,120. It had grown significantly. Now, what did they commit themselves to? Verse 42, this new church, the first church there in Jerusalem, were continually devoting themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, here that's the Lord's table, and to prayer. Those four things they were continually devoting themselves to. So one of the four priorities that the early church committed itself to included fellowship. Now, if you've been in the church any time at all, you know that the Greek word here is koinonia. Unfortunately, 
we misuse the word fellowship. When Christians get together to have donuts and coffee, by the way, there's nothing wrong with donuts and coffee, I'm all for it. But when we get together for donuts and coffee or just an activity or even to watch a ball game, we say people are getting together for fellowship. And there's a sense in which that's true if you understand what's really happening. You see, the English word and its Greek counterpart originally referred to something more. It referred to a relationship. It referred to those who shared in something greater than themselves, something that would outlast them. When you think of the biblical word fellowship, think J.R. Tolkien and his use of that term in the title and book called The Fellowship of the Ring. That small group who bound themselves together with Frodo Baggins to, to destroy the ring of power, they were partners. They were in the fellowship of the ring. That's how the biblical word koinonia is most often used. We are in a fellowship. We're in a partnership with Christ, obviously, but also with other Christians. We're in the fellowship. And that doesn't mean we have a lot in common. In fact, we often don't, just like those who bound themselves together in the fellowship of the ring. But think about the New Testament churches. Think about the church in Philippi, okay? Now, imagine if you had belonged to the church in Philippi. The founding members of that church were three. One, there was a Greek businesswoman, very successful. Two, there was a former demon-possessed slave girl who was a fortune teller. And thirdly, there was a jailer. I expect it was a little awkward at the church Christmas party. <laughs> what do you talk about? I mean, by the world standard, they had nothing in common. But Philippians 1.5 says that they had this in common. They were in the fellowship of the gospel. They were united by their shared commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's what unites us. I mean, some of us have common interests. Some of us have common backgrounds. But many of us don't. And that's okay. What binds us together is not our demographics, but the fellowship of the gospel. We belong to this fellowship. We belong to this partnership. That is how the word fellowship is most often used in the New Testament. But that's not how it's used here in chapter 2, verse 42. Notice here... Fellowship is not used of our relationship as partners, but of an activity. We are to be continually devoted to the activity of fellowship. What does that mean? Well, in the context of Acts 2.42, as we'll see in a moment, fellowship is the sharing of our lives with one another because of the relationship we have in the fellowship of the gospel. It's the practical outcome of the fellowship we belong to, we have fellowship. We engage in fellowship. We share our lives with one another. Let me, let me just sort of fill this out a little bit. Here are the expressions of fellowship. There are four basic expressions of fellowship in this sense. Number one, we share a common worship. Just look again at Acts 2.42. Surrounding the word fellowship are the apostles' doctrine, that is, teaching the truth, 
breaking of bread in verse 42, that's undoubtedly a reference to the Lord's table and prayer. Those are all part of worship. Clearly, the early church fellowship included worship. But that's not all it included. Secondly, it included a common life, a common life. That's the primary focus of chapter 2, verse 42. Luke tells us that those who belonged to the first church there in Jerusalem, notice what he says, were continually devoting themselves to fellowship, that is, to the sharing of their lives with one another. What does that look like? Look at verse 44. All those who had believed were together. Stop there. They were together. Look at verse 46. Day after day, daily, in the temple and from house to house, they were taking their meals together. They were sharing a common life. You see, the New Testament describes Christians as as members of one body, the body of Christ, as members of one family, the family of God. And that's true of us. Therefore, we share a common life. One of the chief expressions of our fellowship is the sharing of our lives, especially our spiritual lives. How does that happen? How does this sharing of our common spiritual life happen? Well, it happens in two ways, as we learned in our conference on fellowship a number of years ago. It happens, first of all, side by side, as we're sitting next to each other like you're doing right now. There's a fellowship that happens even in the corporate worship. But that can't be the only kind of way that fellowship happens. Not only do we fellowship sitting, si- sitting side by side, but at some point that fellowship has to be where we turn our chairs and face each other, where we sit down with each other, across from each other, over a meal or in a home Bible study or in a conversation before or after the service. Listen, you need to be regularly in venues like this where you fellowship side by side but you also need personal, face-to-face interaction with other believers. Get together for coffee or a meal. Have them over to your home. Somehow connect with Christians at a smaller level than you do in a room like this one. Get involved in a ministry where you can get to know believers on a more intimate level. Go to a Sunday school class where you can sit around a table with a consistent group of people week after week and and learn more about their lives, and they learn more about yours. Attend the home fellowship. Somehow, though, you have to engage in sharing common spiritual life with other Christians. Thirdly, this this fellowship that we're engaged in has another expression. It's mutual care. Mutual care. This expression of fellowship requires you to know Christians well enough that you can practice what are normally called the one another's of the New Testament. All those places in the New Testament where it says, do this to one another, do this to one another, do this to one another. Listen, that doesn't happen here. That doesn't happen in this room. It has to happen somewhere else. It has to happen where you know people well enough to be in their lives. Mutual care. And that's what the New Testament church looked like. Look again at Acts 2. Verse 44, it says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. 
and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. By the way, this isn't Christian communism. They, they own these pieces of property. Even in Acts 5, Peter says to Ananias, before you sold it, was it not your own? So this is simply saying that the early church Christians held even those things they owned loosely if they could benefit and bless other Christians. They were quick to share what they had to meet the needs of others. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. Notice they did belong to him, but he didn't claim them as if they were just his own and couldn't benefit others, but all things were common property to them. They thought of their stuff like this is the Lord's stuff, and, and I'm going to use it to be a blessing to other believers. There was a mutual care, that kind of spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25 says, members, the members of the body, us, are to have the same care for one another. I mean, this makes sense, right? There's a mutual care. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, how can you have this world's goods and see your brother in need and not act to meet those needs. How does the love of Christ abide in you if you're not driven to meet the needs of other people? They're part of the fellowship. So there needs to be mutual care. A fourth expression of fellowship is mutual edification. Mutual edification. Romans chapter 15 verse 2 says, each of us, listen to this, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. The word edification simply means to his building up spiritually. By the way, the context of that is Christian liberty. You ever thought about your Christian liberty like this? Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That's how all Christians responded to their Christian liberty. The church would be a simpler place. But that's our spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10, Verses 24 and 25, you remember, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We're to get together. And why? To what end? So that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's building them up. Paul, in Romans 1, verses 11 and 12, puts it this way. He says, I long to see you. This is talking to the Roman Christians. I long to see you that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. That's, that's a remarkable statement. Paul says, even though he was an apostle, even though he'd been a Christian for over 30 years by the time he wrote Romans, he says, I can't wait to be with you Christians in Rome because in being with you, I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to be built up in my faith. That is, by the way, a mature understanding. Maybe you haven't yet come to understand that you need the fellowship of other Christians in order to grow, but that is the reality. God uses fellowship with believers to strengthen you. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, and that concludes our current series, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member. Join us next time, friends, for a brand new series as Tom once again brings us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? 
You know, friend, my prayer for you as we have walked through the series is that you would understand the priorities for your participation in your church. You know, the church is not a passing human creation. Rather, it is the main event on this planet. The thing that matters most to Jesus Christ today isn't what happens in Washington or in Moscow, but in all those local churches in your area that are true churches, believing the true God and the true Christ and the true gospel. In other words, your church matters to Jesus Christ. And specifically, how you carry out your responsibilities matters. I hope that you have finished this series with me with a fresh appreciation for the priority that your church should have in your life, not because of anything other than the priority it holds to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.